Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you all here. Um, it's good to see some uh, familiar faces. I want to welcome Caroline back from South Australia, who's uh, doing some research there. Um, it's good to see you. Um, I like what you've done with your hair. Not to, uh, everybody look at Caroline's hair. Sorry. It looks very nice. <laughs> and it's good to see, uh, Bronwyn and, uh, Daryl and the Cheng family again. Um, for those of you, uh, who are joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. And, um, and, uh, Stanley and Angel, good to see you again as well. So now I'm going to have to go and just highlight every single person. <laughs> I've dug myself into a hole. Um, but it, but it really is good to see you. It warms my heart. Um, today we're going to be uh, talking about the still small voice and learning to listen. And there's a book written by Mark Batterson, and it's called Whisper, and it's got great principles on what it means to uh, kind of tune our ears to hear the voice of God. And so if there's anything in this message that really connects with you, I highly encourage you to go and have a look at the book. So Mark Batterson, it's called, the book is called Whisper. Would you join me for prayer one more time before we start? Father God, we come before you this morning, and we just ask that um, for this next moment you would speak to our hearts, that you would tune our ears to hear your voice. We just pray that your spirit would uh, use this moment to touch our hearts and our lives, and um, we thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to read your word together, to be encouraged. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So Dr. Alfred Tomatis, a French otolaryngologist, and for those of you who are medically trained, you can correct my pronunciation later on, uh, he diagnosed an opera singer who could no longer hit notes that were well within his vocal range. And it was a bit of a, a mystery for this opera singer because he knew, I can hit these notes, but for some reason, I just cannot do it anymore. Using a sonometer, Dr. Tomatis found that the opera singer was producing 140 decibel uh, worth of sound waves within a meter's distance. And to put that into perspective, 140 decibels is louder than a jet taking off of an aircraft carrier. And so this opera singer had this incredible voice. And what the doctor found was that the opera singer had deafened himself by his own voice, and he could no longer hear certain notes, and therefore he could no longer produce those notes. So the French um, Academy of Medicine coined this the Tomatis effect, uh, and basically uh, it's become kind of this uh, well-known, um, I guess, medical condition. And today I'd like to say the implications of the Tomatis effect go beyond our ears, they go beyond the field of medicine, and I believe that the Tomatis effect has implications even in the spiritual realm. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 and 3, the Bible says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from earth. John gives this vision of God's people. They're called the 144,000. They have the name of God written on their foreheads and they have this song. It's the result of their experience 
with God. But it is possible for God's people to lose the ability to sing because they've lost the ability to hear. Our spiritual ear can experience the tomatist effect from the loudness of negative talk, from the loudness of criticism, of condemnation, of culture, and conformity. The Bible says that the enemy of our soul is called the accuser of our brethren, the father of lies. And if we listen to those lies, it can deafen us to the voice of God and keep us from singing God's song. I want to invite you to turn your, in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and we're going to read chapter 3, and we'll go through a few verses together. For those of you who have your white Bibles, it's page 226. 226. For those of you who don't have the white Bibles, I often find that it's easy to remember the prophets in the king's books by just remembering Samuel is the king of Chronicles. Samuel is the king of Chronicles. And so the books of the Bible go 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd uh, Chronicles. <clears throat> so 1st Samuel chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now, in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. In other words, there was a point in time in Israelite history where the voice of God was silenced. People could not hear the voice of God. There was no uh, dreams. There was no revelation. There was no prophecy. There's just silence. To give some context to this story, there's a young boy by the name of Samuel, and he's this product of his mother's prayer. His mother is barren, and she just wants a child so badly. And as she goes to the temple to pray, God hears her prayer, and the result of that prayer is Samuel. And so she dedicates this boy to God as a result of that answer to prayer. And so the story is introduced here in chapter 3 by saying that the voice of God is unheard. Well, in chapter 3, the story goes that God speaks to Samuel. If you go to verse 7, we'll see how Samuel responds. It says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had or he had never had a message from the Lord before. And so there's this process where God consistently calls out to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. If we go to verse nine, Samuel goes to his mentor, this priest or this, yeah, this priest named Eli. And in verse nine, Eli realizes that it's the Lord and he says to Samuel, go and lie down. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. Samuel hears the voice of God for the first time, and he commits himself to God for the rest of his life. And as a result, that voice leads, guides, and directs Samuel, but it also leads, guides, and directs Israel. And I love this story in the Bible because it's saying that we too can hear the voice of God, the voice of God can lead, guide, and direct us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, there's another example of the voice of God speaking. And 
God is speaking to his prophet Elijah, and Elijah has this incredible mountaintop experience with God where he goes up into this mountain and he actually hears and experiences God firsthand. Here's what the Bible says. And he, being God, said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice, or in other words, a whisper. See, God has an outside voice, but when he wants to be heard, he speaks in a still, small voice. And he does this not because he doesn't want to be heard, but it's because God desires us to lean in. I don't know if you've ever had somebody whisper in your ear, and I'll just be a little bit vulnerable here. Um, There were times when um, I would want Jinha to get closer to me physically when we were dating, and so I would talk quieter, and then we'd start whispering to each other. And the reason why you whisper is because you can physically draw closer to each other, and you can just start whispering sweet nothings in each other's ears, right? And, And the whole point is this. God speaks in uh, he speaks in whispers not because he doesn't want to be heard but because he wants us to lean in he desires intimacy god doesn't want us just to hear his word he wants us to know his heart see leaning in requires a comfort with god it's not just a willingness to know what he wants one of my favorite places in victoria is the peninsula hot springs I'm curious, how many of you have been to Peninsula Hot Springs? All right, so about half of us. In Peninsula Hot Springs, there's this one room called the Turkish Steam Bath. And you walk in, and immediately your glasses fog, and you can't see any. Well, for those of you who have glasses, (laughs) you go into automatic blindness. And basically, in this room, it produces all this sorts of steam, and uh, you can really exfoliate your skin, and it feels great when you come out. And uh, the room is... Uh, built in a circle, and on top of the ceiling, uh, they've created this dome. And so it creates this really unique acoustics inside of the steam room. And as you're sitting in the steam room, noise is bouncing and traveling all throughout the room, and what you hear are these whispers. And you can hear the person's conversation or the conversation that's taking place directly across from you because of the way that sound travels. And so even though they're far away from you, you hear these little voices in your ear. I call it a whispering spot. Different, in the people, different people in the Bible had whispering spots where they could hear the voice of God as if he were whispering messages in their ear. There's a story of Daniel. His whispering spot was sitting in front of an open window and praying to God three times a day. That's where he heard the voice of God speak. Moses had a burning bush, this plant that was constantly on fire, and through that plant, he heard the voice of God. Rabbinic tradition states that God showed up in a burning bush to show that there is no place devoid of God's presence. And if you think about the Old Testament, the presence of God is an incredibly holy thing. And as the story of the Old Testament progresses, the glory or the very presence of God is most clearly seen in the sanctuary But here in the story of Moses, we see God speaking out in nature. 
we all can have spots where God's voice is a, lear, a little clearer. God speaks in so many different uh, ways, and it requires a tuning of our ears to hear God. There are acoustic ecologists who go through an exercise called ear cleaning. And basically, these are sound engineers who have to mix sound in the sound booths. So whether it's a concert or whether it's uh, in a recording studio, these uh, special musical engineers go through this uh, exercise. And what they do is they sit in the stillness of a quiet room and they just sit in silence. And what they say is they let their ears relax to recalibrate. And it gives them the ability to hear clear so they can make or mix amazing soundtracks. If we want to hear the heart of God, silence is key. Over the last 30 years, there's a man by the name of Gordon Hempton, and he's a sound ecologist. And he's been collecting a list of the last quiet places on earth. The last quiet places on earth. On Earth, And he's based in the U.S., and so these numbers are a little bit skewed in the sense of they're localized to America. But he says there are 12 places left in the United States that have, um, that have uninterrupted silence. Now, the way that he defines noise pollution is by any noise that is produced by humans. Any noise that's produced by humans. So cars, jets, um, technology. He says there are no places in Europe left that uh, are untouched by noise pollution. He says the most endangered sound in the world is silence. The most endangered sound in the world is silence. And the reason why he values it so much is because, well, he believes in preserving nature, but also he's saying quiet is the think tank of the soul. Quiet is the think tank of the soul. God often speaks loudest. When we are quietest. In Psalm 46 verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. How can we know God if we are not still? I think chronic noise may be one of the greatest impediments to our spiritual growth. When our lives get loud, we lose our sense of being. When our schedules get busy, we lose our sense of balance. If we practice silence in our lives, taking a step back from all the noise in our lives, taking a step back from all the self-talk, taking a step back from all the voices of our employees, of our friends, of our family, we could then hear the voice of God. See, God wants to give us wisdom and guidance. He wants to direct our lives. He wants to speak hope into our lives when we're going through difficulty. He wants to give us confidence to dispel fear in our lives. He wants to put dreams and passions and purpose in our life. And as we tune down the noise of our lives, the voice of God gets clearer. Next week, we have a retreat. We're taking the church stepping out of the city for one weekend, and the whole theme of the weekend is stepping away and resting in God. And our speaker, Celia Kemp, she's really good with what it means to connect with God, and she's going to be teaching us how to read through passages in Scripture, how to be in tune with the heart of God. I hope that you can experience that silence in your lives as you join us next week. And for those of you who are not joining us, we hope you can join us. There's still one week left. We hope that you can sign up and that we can really enjoy that time together. See, silence is the difference between sight and insight. Silence is the difference between happiness and joy. 
Silence is the difference between fear and faith. They've done scientific research, and the, stat- the statistic is that we are interrupted every three minutes. And in order to be in tune with God, it requires setting boundaries. So today I want to ask you, what do you need to turn down so that the voice of God can be turned up? There are several different ways that God communicates. The primary form of communication that God uses is the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the Bible is living and active. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the Bible is God-breathed. As we read scripture, we are inhaling what God has exhaled. When you take in the word of God, you are hearing the voice of God. I want to share some tips on how to hear the voice of God through scripture. Because it's not only about reading the Bible. It's really about going through the process where the Bible can read us. It requires an openness to let the Bible inspect our lives, to speak into our lives. And as we live out the word, then we hear that communication. If you want to hear God whisper, read scripture. So here are a few tips. As you're reading through the Bible, it requires rightly dividing the word. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, when we wrongly divide the word of truth, we then divide the church of God. And so as we rightly divide the word of truth, there's this unifying element. And the way that happens is by study to know God. It's kind of a weird thing, but you can almost turn spirituality into a selfish thing. You can almost study scripture just for the informational aspect. And if you look at different churches, there are things where we are proud of certain things. We are Adventists because we believe this, and therefore we are superior. And it comes out in our rhetoric, and it comes out in the way that we interact with other people. But here, if we study to show ourselves approved to God, the effect is different. Here's some Bible study mentions that, uh, Bible study methods that I would like to mention. Jinha and I are going to be going through different books of the Bible together, and we'll promote this as uh, time goes by. The first thing that we have here is a retreat, and there's also a baptismal class that happens at the end of church each weekend. Um, But after the baptismal class is over, we're going to be reading through books of the Bible together. And we hope that you can join us afterwards. It'll be no longer than an hour each time, and we're going to be sharing different principles of reading Scripture, but we're going to be doing it together. So we're not just telling you how to do it, we're going to be doing it with you. I encourage you to watch Bible Project videos. If you go online, there's a website called BibleProject.com. And they have all sorts of different videos on scripture. So here's their website. There's a series that's entitled How to Read the Bible. There are different series that give you introductions to books of the Bible. So if you're reading an Old Testament book, and sometimes those book of the prophets are really difficult to understand, you can watch a seven-minute video, and it tells you the contents of the video. And that way, as you're reading through it, it helps that reading make so much more sense. 
They also have apps and blogs. It's just a great ministry that they have online. And I find they have a holistic approach to Scripture that is very consistent with how we look at Scripture um, as an Adventist church as well. I encourage you to read Bible passages in context. I had a professor who used to repeat this line, text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. I encourage you to do word studies. If there's something in a passage that doesn't make sense, I encourage you to do a word study. I'm going to ask Ben to flick over to a website. It's called blueletterbible.com. They also have an app as well. Thank you, Ben. Now, a couple weeks ago, I preached on this uh, passage, and maybe if you could just uh, have the passage show a little bit. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there remains no sacrifice for sins. And when I first read that, I, my heart kind of dropped because I thought, well, <laughs> that's it for me. <laughs> no more sacrifice because I definitely know it's right and I don't always do what's right. And so game over. Well, as I read that, I thought, well, I wonder what it means to sin willfully. And so if we go down, if you look at that word willfully, G1596, the bottom of the page, if you click on that button, then what happens is there's an explanation or a definition of that word. And so if we go down to, keep scrolling down, outline of biblical usage, it says voluntarily, willingly, of one's accord. And that one is definitely what it says, and we would all come to that conclusion. But if you look at a broader definition, it says to sin willfully as opposed to sins committed inconsiderately and from ignorance or from weakness. In other words, willfully sinning means you are at a place of perfection, if you will. There is no ignorance, there is no weakness, and yet I'm going to make that decision anyway. And if you look at Bible history, there's only one individual who actually sinned willfully, and that's Lucifer. Someone who was in the very presence of God, who understood truth completely. There was no question about who, what the character of God was like, and he makes this decision, I'm going to do it my way. And that's a big difference from us looking at that and saying, I am weak. I do have bad habits. I, there, there's a lot that I don't know, and I can't seem to get over this one thing in my life there's a difference between those two things. And so word studies are very helpful. If you keep scrolling down, it gives you different instances where the word is used. So in 1 Peter 5 verse 2, it says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight, not by constraint, but willingly. And so Peter is telling his church leaders, I want you to step up into leadership understand what you're doing, make this decision of your own volition, make this decision from your heart, and let it be an expression of that hope and that love that's in your heart. Make that decision willingly. So it gives you a bit of insight into how that word is used. So I encourage you, as you read scripture, if there are concepts that are unfamiliar, questions that you might have, it's worth it to do a word study. We'll go back to the slides. Thank you, Ben. Okay, cool. Next, if after doing a word study, it's still the text still doesn't make sense, I encourage you to read commentaries. There are free commentaries online. There are free commentaries on Blue Letter Bible. And if you really want a hefty commentary, you can come talk to me. I will lend you one of mine. <clears throat> Next, ask for the Holy Spirit to guide you. 
In John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So this is just a brief introduction to make Bible reading a little bit more meaningful. But if you put effort in, it'll be the difference between information and transformation. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 25, the Bible says, Quicken me according to your word. Now the word quicken is used to describe resurrection in scripture. This is saying that if we properly encounter the word of God, we'll experience these mini resurrections in our lives. You know, the way that I do this is, as I'm reading scripture, I ask myself, are there any causes to pause? Are there any causes to pause? So if I'm reading through scripture and there is a question, I don't just brush over it. And I think that's a natural tendency. Many of us have grown up reading scripture. And so there's this idea of, I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know. And so as we read through it, we tend to skim it or just kind of speed read through scripture. But what I find is as I read through scripture slowly, there are so many questions that I have and so many bits of scripture that I don't understand. And so if there's a cause to pause, I'll take one day, one week, one month to just look at one section of scripture so that I can understand it. If you read something convicting, I encourage you take a moment right then and there to connect with God and confess. If you read something that's challenging, Take a moment and connect with God. And if I'm honest, I find my most meaningful moments of confession come after forgiveness. And let me try and explain this way. When my wife and I argue and when we fight, um, it's always the other person's fault. You did this. Well, you did this. And But what I find is after there's genuine reconciliation, then we always highlight the things that we did. I'm so sorry for the way that I treated you. Right? It's kind of interesting. True, genuine confession happens after reconciliation has taken place. This is a weird phenomena. So I find if I read something convicting, I'll spend a moment. God, how do I connect with you? This is what's going on in my life. Can you speak hope, love, acceptance into my life? And as a result of that comes this genuine confession of, God, what can I do for you? <clears throat> Sometimes the text gives a prompting that leads me to an action. I like to write things down. This week or today, I want to do this. I feel convicted. I need to call so-and-so. This week, I feel convicted. I need to do X, Y, and Z. So the end goal of the Bible is not the Bible itself. It's a connection with God. It requires seeking more than information. It requires a seeking for God himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times in various ways. God uses so many different ways to communicate. If you think about the story of Balaam, God used a donkey. If you think about Belshazzar, God used his hand to write on the walls of Babylon. Many, many tekel Farson. God spoke to Hezekiah through illness. What I like about this is that after the author of Hebrew highlights the different ways that God has spoken, he states that Jesus is God's greatest revelation of himself. This is God's primary method of communication, Christ, uh, Christ himself. I'd like to mention five other ways that God communicates. And let me just check my time here. I think I got a little bit of time. There are five other ways that God communicates, and I'll go through these fairly quickly. God uses desires. Uh, desires, doors, people, promptings, and pain. 
uh, before I go into desires, there's a doctor by the name of Howard Gardner, and he's a professor from Harvard, and he popularized the, he popularized the theory of multiple intelligences. And the, sem- the summary of this is that different people are smart in different ways. So there's linguistic intelligence, numerical intelligence, spatial intelligence, body kinesthetic intelligence, musical intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence, and naturalistic intelligence. And the whole point is this. Different people are smart in different ways. And just as people are smart in different ways, God communicates and relates to people in different ways spirituality filters through personality. So here are the different ways that God communicates through desire. The first language is desire. And I think that we have to be careful with this because all of us have selfish desires, right? We have sinful desires and many of those desires can become destructive. But as those desires are sanctified, something incredible can happen. In Psalm 37 verse four, it says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the word give means to conceive. And so in the context of enjoying God, we, have, we can find this new birth or these new desires that are birthed in our hearts. And that ex- in that exchange, we find this incredible fulfillment in God. And what the saying is pretty profound. It's saying those new desires can become compasses and needles to God's will in our lives. We can know and hear God through those desires that he puts in there. The next way that God communicates is doors. In my life, there are so many instances that I can think of where God has opened or shut a door. And usually I kind of like it when God opens a door, but I have found that there are many good things that have happened as God has shut doors as well. God uses people. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, it says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall, but in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. So throughout scripture, God is sending people to give guidance, sending people to give advice. So if there's ever a time in your life where you need guidance and wisdom, it's worth it to pray, God, send somebody into my life to guide me, to lead me, to mentor me. God also uses promptings. Scripture is our map, but the Holy Spirit is our guide. One key in living a spirit-filled life is to learn to discern the promptings of God. See, God is preparing things for us. There are things that God wants us to experience. But if we don't respond to those promptings, how will we ever experience what God wants us to experience? So God uses desires, doors, people, promptings, and finally, pain. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers, through our ple- or, excuse me, God whispers through our pleasures, but shouts through our pain. See, pain is a professor of theology. Pain is a marriage counselor. Pain is a life coach. It helps us to learn some of life, life's most difficult lessons. And I know we usually shy away from pain because I don't know how many of you love pain, but uh, pain is not something that's pleasant. Uh, but what I find is if pain isn't there, then how will our lives be preserved? I think of young children as they play next to stoves. And for those of you who will have children, inevitably they're going to naturally gravitate towards stoves. I don't know why. Well, it's, it's probably because we spend so much time in the kitchen. But um, with little children, they'll put their hands next to the fire. And as they realize, ooh, this is bad for me because it hurts, they'll pull their hand away. But if there isn't pain, what will keep them safe? 
Pain is what keeps that toddler alive. It communicates to the toddler it's a good idea to back away. In 1971, Albert Moravian published Silent Messages, and this included his pioneering research on nonverbal communication. He says, when it comes to credibility, that is, when it comes to us believing what people are saying, 55% of our uh, willingness to believe comes down to body language. What does the person look like as they're communicating what they're communicating? 38% comes down to tone, and 7% comes down to actual words. So think about that. When we choose to believe or not believe someone, only 7% of that comes down to what we say. And here's the challenge. The primary way that God speaks to us is through the word. But you know, God has a body that he can communicate through. And that's the church. It's us. It's the clearest way that people outside of the church hear and see and feel God. We have a responsibility to be the voice of God in our families and in our, uh, in our communities. The journey of hearing the voice of God, it takes discernment. That word is kind of an interesting thing because the Greek word for discernment, it means knowledge gained by firsthand experience. So it goes, discernment goes beyond a book smart, it goes to a street smart. In other words, it takes total immersion. So as we immerse ourselves into a faith community, as we immerse ourselves into the word of God, into the desires, doors, people, promptings, and pain that God brings into our lives, we can discern the voice of God. It's my prayer that you can experience the voice of God more clearly this year as you put these things to practice. May God bless you as you seek him.